In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, one of the primary roles of men across time and culture is that of the warrior. Indeed, how we define masculinity at its core is centrally shaped by warfare. For example, the virtues we think of as manly, like courage and physical strength and daring, are vital in battle. And because for thousands of years, men have primarily been the ones doing the fighting, we expect men to possess those masculine virtues. But the way war is waged has changed throughout human history. If warfare informs our ideas of manhood, do the changes in war change our ideas about what it means to be a man? Well, my guest today on the show answers that question in the affirmative. His name is Leo Brody. He's a cultural historian and film critic and the author of several in-depth and engaging cultural histories, uh, one of them being The Frenzy of Renown. If you haven't read that book, it's fantastic. Check it out. But today we're going to talk about his book, From Terrorism to Chivalry, War and the Changing Nature of Masculinity. Uh, in this book, Leo delves deep into the cultural history of warfare in the West and shows how the changes in battlefield weaponry and tactics have changed our ideas of manhood. Today on the show, Leo and I discuss how the different ways Achilles and Odysseus fought battles, created two competing ideas of manhood among the ancient Greeks, and how we see that competition still going on today. We then dig deep into the chivalric code of the Middle Ages and how aristocratic warriors combine Christian piety with pagan warrior fierceness. Leo then walks us through how the rise of the democratic nation-state changed warfare and manliness, and we end our conversation talking about how the current war on terror is subtly changing our ideas of masculinity today. This is a fascinating show full of keen and thought-provoking insights. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Brody. That's B-R-A-U-D-Y. Leo Brody, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Brett. So a big fan of your work, uh, the first book of yours that I read was The Frenzy of Renown, which is a history of fame in the West, and a fantastic book. And then Amazon recommended I check out your another book you wrote, uh, From Chivalry to Terrorism, War and the Changing Nature of Masculinity. And uh, I'm glad it recommended it, because it's just, what I love about your writing is, I mean, your books are really thick. They can look seem kind of intimidating, but they're a quick read, surprisingly, because they're just so jam-packed with all these interesting insights and uh, historical nuggets um but thank you thank you oh no yeah you're welcome um so in from chivalry to terrorism it's about the changing our changing notions of masculinity in the west um particularly how war um influences our ideas of masculinity i'm curious what was the impetus behind exploring that was it something that you saw while you were researching and writing the frenzy of renown and you thought maybe there's a lot more to mine in that little vein of uh cultural history yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, when I, I, looking back a bit, you know, just like why I go from one subject to another, I mean, it's, it I, reminds me sort of of Venn diagrams. There's always some overlap between them. And that's something that, say, uh, say a corollary part of one subject becomes a main focus of another, of another book. And uh, in this one particularly, I mean, after doing Frenzy, of course, you know, one of the issues in, in Frenzy of Renown is, that, you know, how masculine the idea of fame is. I mean, there's certainly famous women, but they're, you know, they're you know, a very small number compared to famous men. And also, the famous, there are not that many categories of famous women, where there are many different categories of famous men. So it really, that sort of started me thinking just about the whole idea of masculinity and how masculinity gets defined. And, you know, and from my, my usual perspective, I wanted to see it not as an innate category, uh, but as something that has, you know, is potentially innate. There's, you know, there's certainly physiological differences between men and women and things like that, but that how that, how that difference gets shaped into cultural categories over the centuries. 
Right. Yeah. That's sort of the overarching argument you make throughout the book is the, um, you don't discount biology completely. So yeah, there's like two camps when it comes to gender. There's like the biological determinists that say uh, biology determines everything about uh, gendered behavior or ideas. And then there's like the social construct you know, camp, like the extreme one saying that biology has no influence, gender is complete. Um, social construct, right? right. Um, you seem to make the argument, sort of like thread the needle saying, yes, biology plays a part, but we can't also discount the influence of culture on our ideas of, of uh, masculinity or femininity. Exactly. And, you know, I, I start off in the book by, by talking about tribal rituals of masculinity, about uh, circumcision and other kinds of wounding that occur uh, to kind of initiate the, the young boy uh, into the tribe, there too. And so it already starts as something that you might even call ethnographic or anthropological uh, and then mutates, you know, as civilization gets more complex into, into cultural categories. Right. So let's start uh, with the ancient Greeks and Romans. That's where you start. Um, and like, I feel like we're still haunted today by the Greeks and Romans sure. and their ideas of masculinity. So and how did the ways in which the ancient Greeks and Romans waged war? Because that's the thing. You focus on war and how it influenced masculinity. How was it the way they, in, they waged war influenced their ideas of manhood? Well, I think in part, certainly with, uh, starting out with the Greeks there too, there's, there's very much about the, the importance of the group uh, and your role within the group in a warfare situation. But uh, when you look at an individual, I mean, there's a famous story uh, that uh, told about Socrates uh, that when he was on the battlefield, he would just, you know, he would be barefoot, he, you know, he would have his armor. Everybody who was a citizen, then every male person, of course, uh, certainly not slaves, uh, would be a fighter in that. And it was a kind of, uh, you know, what the Romans later would call stoicism there, too. So there's a kind of stolidity, a kind of, you know, the, the hero is not necessarily uh, the great warrior in battle uh, at that point. It's, it's really the one who, you know, who sacrifices for the group, who is part of the group, who fights with the group. Uh, so that's sort of, I think, in, in terms of, you know, the realities of warfare. But then there's the fantasies of warfare. Uh, and you might think, let's say, of the difference between the Iliad and the Odyssey, a difference between Achilles and Odysseus as heroes. You know, Achilles is the guy who can actually fight, who's, but who has this wound, this, you know, the Achilles heel uh, that he can be uh, defeated through. Uh, whereas Odysseus is not so much a physical fighter as he is a wily person, as he is somebody with guile who can trick people. And that's how he... So, I mean, it's almost like the Iliad and the Odyssey are kind of this... Uh, split version, this kind of almost Jekyll and Hyde version uh, of the Greek idea of the ideal individualist hero. Right, yeah, and um, if you, you can see in ancient texts, they venerated the sort of the Achillean model, right, where it's you, you, you take on your combatant directly, because that's the honorable way to fight. And Odysseus was sort of seen as, even though he, he's the guy that won, helped win the Trojan War, according to myth, with the Trojan horse, he's sort of seen yeah. as like less manly than Achilles. Yeah, well, less manly in that sense. So, I mean, it's a question of, you know, what is manliness then? You know, is manliness in the head or is it manliness in the body there? And, I, you know, I think that's, that's sort of a, a divided thing. I mean, if you look at other kinds of um, uh, physical heroes, let's say even in the Iliad, somebody like Ajax there, I mean, there's a sort of uh, meathead side uh, to the excessively physical hero right. there. And part of... Part of what happens to Achilles, I think, in the, in the course uh, of the Iliad, uh, is that he becomes more internal, more introspective. He becomes so. I mean, it's it's a you know an effort in a fictional sense uh, to you know for whoever Homer was, um, or how many people Homer was, to you know to try to see uh, masculinity not as single noted. Yeah. Um, so was there one idea that won out amongst the Greeks, or were they just sort of there competing amongst each other, the sort of Achillean? I think they're always competing, and I think that's kind of part of the nature of, of masculinity in general, as you see it across the ages. That is, you know, to what extent um, it's, it's, it's single-noted, to what extent it goes to one end of the spectrum. Uh, and to what extent it's a sort of continuing argument within culture. I think this, you know, this is part of the difference, to, to me, historically at least, between masculinity and femininity. Uh, that is, 
because women are connected to nature, they're considered to be kind of invariable in a certain way. They're, they're not single noted, but they're, you know, they're because they're part of nature uh, in that sense. Uh, they are, you don't have to argue about what women are. Uh, talking, you know, in, in terms of the authors themselves, not necessarily in the actual nature of femininity. But then historically, though, masculinity is always part of an argument. Is this kind of man better than that kind of man? And I think you can see that thread uh, through the ages. And how did the Romans pick up that, uh, that thread? Well, the Romans started moving more towards the, uh, and again, taking clue, uh, clues from uh, Greek practices uh, to different kinds of masculinity. I mean, there was the, the warrior, and then there's the politician. Now, a lot of them, somebody like Caesar, somebody like Pompey, you know, tried to combine the warrior and the politician, but then somebody like Cicero, uh, you know, really that was about the politician, the orator. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, you can see this uh, again uh, in terms of the, uh, the earliest views of the, what kind of man was important. Say, the athlete in Greek culture is a very important figure. I mean, if you won the 100-yard dash there at the Olympian Games, you, you could have the, ne- the year named after you. Uh, and so this, that kind of possibility was the physical hero. But then there was the hero in front of other people. Like Pericles, I mean, Pericles is a you know leader in battle, but he's remembered for his funeral oration. He's remembered for his uh, what he did as the uh, kind of leader of Athens in a political sense. So this idea, you know, is it the politician? Is it the orator? Is it the person who appears in front of public, or is it the person of physical prowess? Uh, who was really the hero. And, uh, you know, I'll go back to what I was saying about Socrates on the battlefield, that Socrates is a, is a hero of, of thought there. And, and when, he, when he becomes a soldier, he becomes a hero of a kind of not active physicality, but of stoicism. Right. Yeah. The ancient Greeks and Romans, they defined, often defined courage as the ability to stand your ground. It wasn't necessarily to actively battle but just be able to stand your ground with the group yeah and you know one of the roman heroes was uh, fabius maximus cunctator and cunctator means the delayer he was the guy who who never got to battle or got took a long time getting there because he was wearing out the enemy i mean it's almost like a you know chinese art of war strategy right and um but you talk about in the book even amongst the romans there was that um there was an argument about what, what is the most manly way to fight. You had the professional soldiers who put an emphasis on standing your ground, stoicism, being well-trained. But at the same time, the Romans had this admiration for the barbarians and sort of their more exactly like fierce and active way of fighting. So what was going on there? How did they, how did they incorporate the two into their idea of man, manhood? Well, I think part of it is uh, the fear, and it's some, and it's a kind of fear that arises, uh, you know, rises in later centuries as well. I think you know, even in in the nineteenth century in Europe, there it's a fear of being too civilized. It's a fear of being too orderly, too cultured, perhaps. And so you look for a source of energy and a source of renewal and reinvigoration uh, in the primitive. And so, let's say in Tacitus, for particularly, you know, there's a kind of hankering for that war, that uh, kind of warrior energy uh, that the barbarians represent, that somehow we've gotten their feet, we've gotten civilized, in quotation marks, the Romans, that is, uh, and, you know, we need that, that new energy. Right. I think it's interesting. Uh, we had a, a fellow on the podcast. He's a classics professor. Uh, he does a podcast called The Fall of Rome. And we talked about the Romans and the barbarians interactions. It was interesting how both cultures, like they wanted what each culture had, right? So the barbarians, like they wanted like that sort of sophistication of the Romans. And then the Romans, they would like, they started like naming their kids after like, bar, you know, German, Germanic names and like wearing wolf's, you know, clothing like the barbarians did. Um, so it's interesting how both cultures saw something in their culture, the manhood that they wanted. Yeah, I think, you know, that's, and again, it's something that you can see in, in other cultures uh, over the centuries. I think, let's say, uh, the, you know, the relationship between the French and the English or the Americans, you know, the French are the sophisticated ones, and you know, there's a longing, you know, in that kind of Franco, Francophile way for that sophistication, whereas the French value certainly uh, in American culture and in English culture, uh, you know, the more primitive, what they consider to be, you know, the more primitive expressions, whether it's 
uh, in the 18th century novel, or whether it's Jerry Lewis, let's say, as a director. <laughs> well, another another theme that you you explore throughout that's an important concept into our notions of manhood throughout the West is this is honor. Um, we mm-hmm. in the today have we conceive of honor sort of uh, as personal integrity. Um, but that's not how ancient or even you know early modern people thought of his honor. So how did how did people think of honor? What was honor um, to an ancient Roman or a Renaissance or medieval man? Well, I, you know, it's it's very telling uh, that the word uh, that our word virtue goes back to virtus in Latin, and which means something that a man have a vir, which is the word for man in Latin. There, so its honor is only something, and virtue, by the same token, is only something that a man could have. And again, women are sort of left out of the equation there. Right. So it really de- depends on, you know, that is honor itself and virtue itself. Uh, you know, for a long time, depends on an idea of ma- an ideal, actually, of masculinity. There, I mean, there's a warrior ethos there. I mean, you can see this. Uh, in, in this is why I begin the book well, with chivalry because of the, the chivalric code, the idea that there there is a way of being a perfect knight in that way, a perfect warrior. It's not just only about physical prowess. There is some idea of honor and virtue uh, connected to it as well. Uh, it, you know, it becomes a something again, something to be striven for. It's not. You can almost say, uh, you know, if you need a chivalric code, it's because people aren't acting very chivalrically or very honorably uh, otherwise. Right. And again, another point you make, um, for honor to exist, like, it, there needs to be an audience. And I guess mm-hmm. for the Greeks and the Romans, like, other men were the audience, or other men uh, on the same level. Um, but how did that change with uh, the medieval era and the rise of the chivalric code? Well, there's a there's a big uh, conflict during the Middle Ages uh, between the idea of the warrior, let's say, and the idea of the Christian. There, uh, you know, as, and Christianity struggles, I think, with with chivalry because chivalry, to a great extent, comes out of paganism. You know, it comes out of um, it comes out of the Vikings, it comes out of the Norsemen, it comes out of this idea, you know, something like the um, you know the early English poem Beowulf of a of a personal direct uh, relationship with the forces that you are fighting with. Uh, it doesn't, it's not about mercy. It's not about those New Testament values that Jesus um, embodies. Uh, it's something else. And so there's, you know, there's, a, there's an effort to pull those together, to pull those together in a kind of chivalric code that emphasizes both the physical masculinity uh, as well as the moral Christianity uh, of the warrior. So how do they reconcile that then? I mean, what, how, did, how did that manifest itself, that reconciliation of the pagan warrior ethos with the, the more the, the Christian ethos? Well, they managed it. I think they managed it sort of with difficulty, uh, let's say. I mean, one of the reasons that historians say that the, um, you know, the, the Crusades were first being preached was not only to, as they said, you know, rescue um, Jerusalem uh, and that area from, uh, you know, from the pagans, uh, from the Moors and, you know, the, the Muslims, uh, but also to make sure to, to, to divert the, uh, the knights of Europe who were engaged in so many internecine battles with each other for, you know, for power, for land, for whatever it was, for wealth there. I mean, there was so much killing going on in Europe. They wanted to, uh, you know, this is a more cynical view of the Crusades. They wanted this, the, the theologians and the people who preached the um, Crusades said, look, let's, let's focus somewhere else. Let's look at some, you know, the idea of a common enemy outside might subdue these fights within. Right. And who were the type of men who could lay claim to being a real man? So these were knights. I guess like the, I guess it's so is it aristocracy only that had this sort of could claim to be a man under this medieval notion of manhood? Well, the you know, the um for the most part, although some, you know, some people could rise into that, could get could gain that status through their own, you know, physical prowess. And, you know, the um the Middle Ages tended to divide society uh, into three groups. Uh, the, 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 in Latin, they called them the laborares, uh, the, uh, orat- the ares, and the, um, the pugnatares, that is, the people who work, the laborers, uh, the people who pray, that is, the priests, and the people who fight, 
that is the knights the, and the warriors and they were the ones who protected the kingdom so i mean that was that was they were the three types of of masculinity uh and the the protectors then the warriors were of the highest class for the most part uh and the laborers of course the lowest class and the priesthood you know somewhere in between there so yes, they they were there, but the thing is above above the the warriors though, and this is kind of an in, intriguing part of it. Above the warriors were the people who actually hired the warriors, were the real aristocrats. Uh, and one of the intriguing things that happens in the course of of the Middle Ages is that because I would say because of the chivalric code, because of the idea that warriors have this honor or aspire to this honor. Uh, people who were actually nobles with a lot of money who hired warriors to do whatever they wanted them to do wanted to be thought of as warriors, wanted to be thought of as knights themselves. Um, you know, there's an interesting detail around 10th or 11th century uh, whereby various kinds of legal documents that used to be signed by these nobles as dominus or, you know, lord or leader uh, started being signed by the same people as equus or, you know, equestrian as warrior, horseman. Interesting. And at this time, was there any sense of, I, like, I guess we'll get into this later, but like national identity, like, do these knights think I'm fighting for king and country or was it like, I'm just fighting for myself uh, so I can make money and get glory? Well, this is, it, nationalism is in a very embryonic stage at, at this point, uh, it, you know, and probably, um, I mean, even in England, I mean, England is really, to me, where, where na- ideas of nationalism uh, really get started, and somewhat later than this, 16th and 17th century, particularly 15th, 16th, and 17th, because England is, and Scotland are they're islands, so they already feel separate. Uh, and so the idea of separateness uh, and the idea of nationalism somehow go together, and so the, those places become a, you know, a better incubator of nationalist ideas. But in the Middle Ages, you know, you have um, international Catholicism sort of covers all of England and Scotland and Europe and France, et cetera, there. And so people could um, uh, not, you know, wouldn't, they'd be fighting more, they'd fight more, let's say, for their local lord. I've made some comparisons in the book with what's happening uh, in Japan at the same time there. And, you know, you're fighting the, the ronin, they're all fighting the... Uh, uh, the samurai, they're fighting for their local lords. They don't really have an idea of Japan behind this uh, at all, even when they're fighting uh, foreigners. That's interesting. Um, and so the laborers, uh, I mean, I, I, I understand from my understanding of uh, medieval history, there was sort of this competition between the, the priest class and the, the warrior class on what... What, who was the man, I guess, is the, the way. There yeah. was, um, but the, the laborers, were they even like in the debate at all, or were they just sort of ignored and by both the priest and the, the knights? Pretty much ignored, I would say. You know, it's not, you know, they, they, they were there. They did their jobs. They didn't fight particularly. They probably, you know, got killed um, and their houses, you know, their villages burned, uh, you know, when, well, knights would sweep through the neighborhood. I mean, there's a certain amount of truth in Game of Thrones and, <laughs> and the way it depicts those, those periods, you know, that, that the, the people on the ground, the lower class, the workers and artisans and people on the ground are just, you know, there to be, uh, you know, run over by the, uh, the fights, you know, between the, the various knightly and noble houses there. I think you know it would be interesting. It's interesting to kind of take a look, let's say, at the Canterbury Tales, uh, and the way Chaucer uh, describes these different people, because he has a whole array of of social types there. And he starts out with the knight, uh, and you know, and the knight is there, and he's supposed to tell the first tale because you know he's the highest status, et cetera, et cetera. But almost immediately, the miller butts in after the knight's tale, and um, he tells his tale. He said, I want to tell mine. He's drunk. He's going to tell his tale first. So Chaucer is sort of showing you, um, you know, even within the Canterbury Tales there, a, a picture of a society that is not quite is stratified socially, but is not quite, uh, let's say, static socially at all. And, you know, there can be... You know, is the miller representative of a rising uh, class, a rising mercantile class in there? Who knows? I mean, you can stretch that a little bit. But, you know, there's definitely a lot of tumult um, between the classes in that point. And just one other thing about the Canterbury Tales, it's interesting that the two characters uh, on the trip 
that are considered to be, uh, you know, the most holy, let's say, that are described with the least irony, the least satire, the parson and the plowman, who are actually brothers. So it's not the parson in kind of lower level member uh, of the religious and the plowman, certainly very low, low level uh, of the laborers there, are somehow seen as ideal figures, even, uh, you know, within the social array. Right. So we're starting to, sort of beginning to see the rise of sort of democratic notions of not, not only manhood, but individualism as well. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's intriguing that, um, uh, that in, you know, Chaucer is frequently being accused of being a, a Lollard, uh, you know, which is a kind of early, that's a kind of negative term for an early English proto-Protestantism. Uh, a, a part of which uh, wants the Bible to be translated into English so that individuals can read it. So, I mean, there's a sense that it's the individual relationship to God without the uh, priesthood being in between there uh, is, is part of, you know, the kind of seedbed for a more secular individualism that comes later. Um, so another th- um, thread you explore throughout the book is how advances in technology, particularly uh, military technology, um, affected notions of manhood. Um, so how did that? How did technology change uh, what was considered manly amongst uh, you know, early Europeans and even going back to the ancient Greeks and Romans? Well, the thing is, from the ancient Greeks and Romans uh, forward you know, to the Middle Ages, the primary way that battles were fought was hand-to-hand, was direct, face-to-face, hand-to-hand. You're using a sword, you're using a spear. Uh, you know, there were, there were kinds of group strategies like the, the testudo of um, ancient Greece where a group would get together and use its shields to, to being looking like a turtle there and moving across the field and being more impenetrable that way. But the ideal, at least, of the heroic, of the individual, individualist heroic, was much more hand-to-hand. You are facing your opponent, you are, you are battling, one person is going to win and another person is going to lose. It's really either or in that way. But in the later Middle Ages, when guns start coming in and cannons and things like that, uh, you know, that is, uh, it becomes very different. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, to get on your horse with all your fancy armor and your, you know, uh, and your spears and what have you and ride against somebody else, uh, as opposed to being, um, shot with a gun there. I mean, this knocks them down. I mean, so, so the, I, the status of the warrior uh, you know, becomes much more in question there. Uh, the, war, the, the older warrior hero, uh, you know, encased in his armor with his helmet and everything else. Now this, you know, of course, one of the classical moments when this happens is not really about guns, but it's really about archery. And again, archery is killing at a distance there. Uh, so something like the Battle of Agincourt, you know, in the 15th century there, where the English defeat the French, I mean, it it's the French aristocracy. The French are still holding to a, an older ideal of warfare where each person is wearing his colors and sallying forth on his horse and the horse is armored and the man is armored and then all these lower class English archers are shooting hails of, of arrows at you and killing people and they don't even know who you are. I mean, there's so much in, in earlier battle about knowing who you are. Again, thinking about the Iliad, uh, people who face each other on the battlefield start telling their genealogies to each other. I am the son of X and the grandson of Y there. That is, it's, it is very personal. It is very family-oriented, very individualized. Uh, but with archery and then, of course, even more so uh, with, with guns and powder and ammunition and things like that, it becomes much more depersonalized. And was there a pushback again amongst armies about you know, adopting these technologies because it was considered less honorable? Oh yes, well certain armies yeah wouldn't do it. Uh, you know, and there are various there are huge uh, kind of screeds against the use use of cannons is considered to be Satan's instrument. Why? Because you know again it it obliterates the uh, the individual honor that is possible in battle. Right. And you, you also point out this happened in Japan as well. I guess in the 17th century, the Ronins uh, acquired firearms, but they made them illegal uh, because it wasn't... Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, they wanted to go. The Japanese managed to go back to to reverse <laughs> reverse it uh, and go back to the sword for for a long period of time when uh, after uh, firearms were first invented. Um, so, but how did uh, this idea of, of of being known and knowing your enemy who you're fighting? Uh, it was a strong idea. I mean, how did this did this still manifest itself even in the 19th century with you know the advent of modern warfare with the Civil War? Did people still try to keep that sort of uh, classical idea of what it means to be a, a valiant warrior? Well, I think it. I think it got more and more difficult, and it sort of moved into the realm of not quite a fan, well, maybe cultural fantasy, you might call it. That is, you know, you'll look see something like um, uh, Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, you know, dressed in an old style you know, suit of armor, almost, in, you know, in a portrait. That is, it it comes to signify a kind of heroism, but that in fact doesn't really exist anymore on the actual battlefield. Uh, and so the, the fascination, uh, I mean, you have something like Tennyson's Idols of the King, uh, you know, your fascination with the Middle Ages uh, in, um, in the 19th century is a fascination, again, I think uh, very much like uh, what, what we were discussing or somewhat earlier about the way in which uh, a civilized society hankers after a more primitive society because it seemed to be purer and more direct and a closer relationship to what they consider to be real values than what happens later. Look, you know, from from the Napoleonic Wars to World War One, uh, the uh, the ability to shoot a uh, to say a single bullet uh, over a distance increases enormously. Enormously, you know, they're still using you know, flintlocks and things like that in the Napoleonic Wars. By the time you get to World War One, I, I mean, you don't only have these huge cannons like you know Big Bertha and things like that, but you know you have guns that can shoot fifteen hundred yards. So um, you know the distance is increasing constantly, and so there's a tremendous pressure then on the idea of what constitutes um, individual heroism in battle. We'll explore this, this sort of this. Um the strand in the 19th century of sort of uh, romanticizing the medieval era and um, sort of like, it's almost like an anti-modern revolt a little bit. But before we get to there, how, I thought this was really interesting. I never really thought about it. How did the rise of democratic nation states change warfare and the Western ideas of, of manhood? Well, the, the rise, you know, the rise of nation states, you know, which starts really in the 17th century, I mean, in a self-conscious way, uh, it is very important. I mean, part of what happens, with, and especially with the democratic states, and what happens in the United States in the 18th century with breaking away from England, and what happens in the French Revolution, let's say, um, is I would characterize as, this, as a change from being subjects to being citizens. Uh, and that is, instead of fighting for your local leader, for your local lord, or even for your for your king as a as a figure, you are fighting for your country. The idea of fighting for your country, then, I mean, it was there in you know in the Roman period. It's you know it's, this is not the first time it happens, but in you know that to fight for the country, for the patria, for Rome. Um, but it in the 17th and much more in the 18th century with the democratic revolutions in England and in the United States, there. Uh, it becomes a much more of the moment, very very contemporary uh, in that way. So, as a citizen, then that is the obli- before this, you know, most of the most of the uh, wars, let's say from oh I don't know, you know, just let's say from the Renaissance forward into the mid eight mid or so 18th century, most of those wars were fought by people who, by mercenaries, by people who were paid to fight. Uh, they didn't necessarily have any. Uh, national relationship they, uh, to the country that they were fighting for. Um, but with, of course, again, with the French and American revolutions, it's about your own country. Uh, you know, it's when national anthems get started, really. Uh, and this idea of creating a kind of emotional relationship to your country, uh, that also involves a citizen's obligation, a male citizen at this point, of course, a citizen's obligation to fight for your country when it's threatened. And in a way, it democrat not in a way then so that democratized manliness, right? More men could lay claim to manhood. It wasn't just for 
an aristocratic, aristocratic warrior class or these mercenaries, like the average citizen could also show himself a man. Yes, exactly. No, that's exactly right. And, and it's, that is, you know, the, the social side, you know, the uh, time-honored traditional social side of only a certain aristocratic class who then uh, being the, you know, the bulwark uh, uh, against uh, invaders and enemies there, uh, kind of disappears and it becomes something that that everybody can feel a part of. And certainly, uh, the you know I think particular to a certain extent in World War One, but particularly in World War Two, you know that becomes something uh, that uh, that governments play, government propaganda, of course, uh, plays upon. You know that is your personal obligation, uh, the gold star mothers. You know your the personal sacrifices uh, that are made by every normal, ordinary citizen to fight. Uh, for his or her country, and I, that might sound great on the you know more men can be considered manly, but I think you make this point in the frenzy around one of the the downsides of democracy that Alexis de Tocqueville noticed is that yes, you open up the the way for more people to gain status in a society, but at the same time you increase anxiety uh, about your status because there's more people that you're competing against for status. So that happened with manhood as well as more men were able to lay claim to being a man. There was more of an anxiety, like, am I a man? Am I, be, am I a real man? Yeah, and I think, you know, all, not just masculinity, but all ideas of status then, you know, are, you know, are cast into doubt there. Uh, in, the old, in the old format, it was genealogical. It came out of family. You know, my family has been here for many, many years, and back to my great-great-grandfather, we've owned these lands and things like that. But when it's open to, when it's open to all, then uh, there's simultaneously this, this sense of importance of, you know, my, my masculinity is important as anybody else's, uh, but at the same time, I wonder, <laughs> the downside of it, I wonder, you know, whether I can measure up. Right. Will I be able to measure up? Um, so you mentioned earlier um, that in the 19th century, there's sort of this return to medieval you know, chivalric ideas of manhood in the 19th century. And um, we saw something similar in America with uh, the rise of Teddy Roosevelt's strenuous life. What what was going on in the, sort of the collective psyche of the West and the culture that saw, uh, it seems like it was almost an anti-modernist movement where you saw in Europe, people venerating knights and telling these stories of knights. And in America, this interest in um, Native Americans and sort of this admiration of, of Native Americans and Roosevelt's idea of the strangers' life. What was going? Why? Why did that happen? Well, I think in part it's it's about again trying to re-individualize it. I mean, you know, another one of Roosevelt's phrases was rugged individualism. There, that is, you had to be tested. There, you know, and Roosevelt, of course, he came out of his own uh, his own autobiography. There, you know, his his mother and his his wife dying so so close together, uh, and he leaves New York and he goes out to the Dakota Territories, you know, to become a man in a sense, you know, to kind of to kind of face, uh, you know, what is toughest, and the and. This is something that the um, certainly that the United States has in that period that other countries don't quite have in the same way. That is the, a, an idea of a testing place, an idea of a place that is beyond civilization, beyond the you know, the barriers of civilization, with all its legalities and law courts and politicians and what have you, to a place where it's really about you and your your gun essentially, uh, and whether you can you know whether you can hack it whether you can actually discover in yourself the man that you want to be uh, in, these, in these kinds of things. And, you know, there's a, f- a phrase that's often used um, uh, about this period, uh, descriptively, it's called redemption through violence. Are you going to be redeemed through going into this violent world, whether it's the violence of other men, whether it's the violence of the climate, the violence of wild animals, whatever it is out there, the West is the testing place for it. And by the same, you know, double, the same paradoxical token there, you can be redeemed through violence, but also you could fail. You could lose through violence and violence could show you were not the man that you thought you were. That's, that's really interesting. Um, so we, we're here in the 19th century. Uh, we're, we're going into the early 20th century. And uh, there was this sort of uh, like a renaissance of chivalric uh, battle, right? Um, and then World War One starts. 
how how did that sort of that that movement in the late nineteenth century in Europe and America? How did that um, I guess color people's idea of what World War One was going to be like? Well, most people thought that World War One was going to be over with in a couple weeks when it started. I mean, look 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 at the situation there uh, in Europe between the Napoleonic World uh, Wars and World War One. There's almost a hundred years of comparative peace. I mean, the only major war uh, they are fought in Europe is the Franco-Prussian War uh, in the 1870s there, which was over actually fairly quickly. The United States was much worse because of the civil wars, uh, and the civil war, to a certain extent, becomes the model for World War I, uh, certainly in terms of strategic thinking um, in, the, in Europe there. But the, the problem is, and the reason that people thought it was going to be over with quickly, is that they thought that, that weapons you know, weaponry had advanced so quickly that, that in fact, it would just end. You know, somebody would be the obvious winner uh, in that way. But, of course, it just dragged on with trench warfare. It dragged on for years and years and years. And there's nothing very individualistic about trench warfare. It's about masses of people, you know, trying to get over the edge, going through no man's land, getting killed, getting bombed. Uh, getting bombed by people who can't see you, getting shot by people who see see you lighting a cigarette or something like that. I mean, again, uh, it's like a total, totally, uh, in terms of the past, unhonorable way of fighting. Right, and that because of that, it caused a whole bunch of disillusionment. That's where we get the whole lost generation, Hemingway, and all those folks. A lot of disillusionment, uh, and uh, you know, there's a. Uh, the Wilfred Owen poem, uh, uh, Dolce Decorum Est, you know, that is, it's sweet and it's appropriate uh, to, it goes back to a line of Horace, a Roman line, you know, Dolce Decorum Est Pro Patria Morai. Uh, it's sweet and it's appropriate to die for your country there. And, of course, the poem itself is like totally ironic. It's about slaughter. It's about, you know, death for no reason at all. Um, so, but why is it? So if you, you know, a couple years, about a decade later, um, two decades later, World War II broke out. And for some reason, like in our collective psyche, I think we remember World War I as sort of this nihilistic, just senseless war um, where our notions of you know, honorable manhood were just obliterated. But in World War II, I feel like we remember it sort of as a romantic war that reinvigorated manhood. Why, why is it that we remember World War II like that, but not World War I? Well, I think the, I, we do remember World War I to a certain extent, and a, to a great extent it's because of the movies, um, you know, in terms of air warfare. That is, air warfare in World War I was where the heroes were. You were by yourself in a plane, you were fighting, and again, the, the, so the ideal of hand-to-hand -hand battle was still preserved to a certain extent uh, in air warfare. Uh, you know, you were going after the Red Baron or whatever it was there. Um, with, world, with World War II, and whereas uh, just on the, you know, on the ground, people were in the mud. Forget about them. They're all de-individualized, but all the great heroes are up in the skies. By World War II, you know, the movies have really helped a lot to, um, to present this. Um, but I think also, you know, what do we think of? We think of the greatest generation. We think of band of brothers, things like that. We're thinking about the group, uh, and you know, the World War One squad. Excuse me, the World War Two squad uh, is like the archetypal group, you know, in, uh, in American, certainly in American film and American fiction, there, and. In that squad, you know, there's Martinez and there's Cohen and there's Dombrowski and there's O'Reilly. You know, this is like a whole panoply of the various ethnic groups uh, that exist in the United States there. So it's a sense that the romance is a romance of, of a kind of national togetherness, I think. Uh, fighting, you know, fighting for an ideal, fighting for the... Um, ideal uh, are they fighting for the ideal of america it's unclear are they fighting for against anti-semitism against nazism it's unclear i mean actually they did a big sociological survey uh, after the war uh, on called the american soldier come multiple volumes and one of the things they discovered in it is that for the most part people were fighting why were they fighting why were they being heroic why did they do things like that for their buddies they were doing it for their immediate group there. If you ask them about Nazism or communism or whatever it was, if you ask them about more abstract things, 
they didn't really have much relationship to it. Um, so the sense of the group, the sense of discovering that actually uh, you, as, as what, you know, an Irishman from uh, Boston had affinities with a Jew from New York uh, or affinities, you know, with a um, uh, Chicano from, from Los Angeles or whatever it was. I mean, that was the, the discovery of the war. And I think that's part of um, why we romanticize it. We're looking back to a time, especially right now when we seem so divided, we're looking back to a time um, you know, when people actually could stand together against an, a common enemy. Right. Uh, and you also make the case that the war had you know, these large cultural implications on our ideas of manliness. It was you know, after the World War II where we see the proliferation of Westerns, right? Like John Wayne, like movies just proliferate. Like what was going on there? Why did the cowboy, and also you talk about like the detective, right? The private eye. Mm-hmm. Why, why was this um, icon so popular amongst men um, in the post-war uh, years? Well, I think the you know both the both the cowboy and the detective are are kind of idealized individualist figures. Uh, the cowboy has to you know go it alone. He has to fight for what he thinks is right. He has a kind of moral charge that walks with him. And the detective, but he, and he, of course he's in the wilderness. He's in the west. Uh, he's fighting. Uh, who knows? crooked cattle barons or, you know, local town sheriffs or things like that. Um, the um, detective is in the corrupt places of the city. He has to make his way, whether he's the, you know, the Raymond Chandler detective or the uh, Mickey Spillane detective, let's say Mike Hammer. Uh, you know, he, he has to make his own path. And I think that's the idea. It's, you know, it's that effort to retain some sense of individual moral virtue connected to violence uh, that um, is lost by the by the nature of modern warfare. Right, and also not the nature of modern warfare, but just like the nature of modern bureaucracies, modern corporations, etc. Yeah, exactly. Modern bureaucracies, modern corporations, all the things that de-individualize you, that treat you as a number or a statistic or just a voice at the other end of the phone that they have to get rid of as quickly as possible. Um, you know, all that kind of de-individualizing kind of gives rise to heroes that seem more individual. And what about the Vietnam War? Did that shift our ideas of manhood because of the way it was fought? I think so. I think the Vietnam War was is, was an interesting change. Uh, I think the v- Vietnam War very specifically, uh, Korea to a certain extent, but Vietnam really cemented it. Uh, it's the idea of what what that changed was the idea that we're on one side of the line and they're on the other side of the line. That is... You know, I was talking about face-to-face, the, you know, the importance of face-to-face in, in an ancient battle there. Well, it gets translated later on to, you know, us versus them. We're, we're over here. Then there's this no-man's land as in um, World War One, and the enemy is on the other side. With Vietnam, the enemy was all around you. You didn't know who was the enemy. That was the part of the problem. That was the confusion of it. So the sense of a, a world, the world that we live in now, where the enemy can be anywhere, that there is no uh, order of battle that says, you know, and, and nobody wears a uniform. You can't tell that, you know, the guys on our side are wearing blue and the guys on the other side are wearing red or green or whatever it is. That is, it's not easy to tell who the enemy is. And I think that's, that's really the, the modern situation and the modern dilemma in all sorts of warfare. I think, you know, it's responsible for, you know, kinds of, of racism, you know, that say all Muslims are going to be, ex, you know, like terrorists or things like that. That is, there's a desperate, you can't figure out who the enemy is and you can't figure out uh, how to describe them. Right. And so, I mean, how's that going to affect, how's that affect our ideas of manhood? Is it just make it, <laughs> make it harder to figure out what it means to be a man? I mean, what, what is all this confusion? What do you think is going on there? Well, you know, I think in, in a certain way, it's, it's, make, it's more positive. It has a positive effect now. I think that people realize, uh, you, know, you know, especially with, with gay uh, liberation and gay marriage, things like that, LGBT things, uh, that in fact, uh, gender in, generally is on a continuum. 
That is, you know, we may have lost the either-or in battle, but it's a good thing to have lost the either-or in, in gender, you know, male over there, female uh, totally on the other side. Uh, you know, when we look at some of, the, uh, some of the other societies around the world where there's a more polarized relationship between male and female, let's say, and, you know, men are supposed to be entirely one way and women are supposed to be entirely the other way, we can, we can now, I think, a lot more easily see the problems of those societies and perhaps, you know, the reason for, um, uh, or at least the analogy with that, that kind of polarization uh, and their own kind of uh, absolutist violence and, you know, belief in their, in their own kind, their own definition of virtue. So what do you think is the, the future of, of manhood in the West? Is it just going to be, we're going to have different conceptions, competing ideas of manliness? Are we going to see the same thread that goes all the way back to Achilles and Odysseus continuing on today or continuing on in the future? Well, I think that will always be in the background. You know, all, absolutist ideas of masculinity uh, will always be in the background, but I think they'll become less and less important. Uh, along the way, and they have become less and less important along the way. I think that, you know, there's an acceptance of more varieties uh, of masculinity now than there used to be, just as there's an acceptance of more varieties of femininity and, and anything now in between there. And I think that can only be, I mean, that is, you know, if, you're, <laughs> if there's any kind of positive gleam <laughs> in the present, uh, you know, with a lot of shadows that we know all exist, they're all around us. I think it's the idea that at least at the at the level of of gender, uh, in fact, uh, people are more accepting of difference than they used to be. They may they may be upset by other kinds of things, but um, you know, gender is not as much of a battlefield. I think you know, certain areas, of course, it still is, but I think generally it's it's improved tremendously, certainly in my lifetime. Well, Leo, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, you can check out my, my website, um, leobrody.com. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to keep it updated. Uh, it talks about, you know, I have a couple recent books. Uh, and actually, you know, it, the, um, when I started writing From Chivalry to Terrorism, or it, the, the seeds for that sort of happened a while ago, actually, in the, in the 1980s. And at that point, I considered it to be a kind I wanted it to be a kind of... Uh, alternate chapters between what I was looking at historically and what, would, what was happening to me as I was growing up in the 1950s, especially as a teenager there. Uh, but you know, then that seemed totally unworkable, and, and chivalry turned into you know, more of a, a view of history. But I did write a book uh, called Trying to Be Cool, which is a kind of autobiographical thing, came out in 2013, uh, just about being a teenager in the 1950s and being buffeted around by, among other things, movies, uh, rock and roll, and ideas of masculinity. How was I supposed to grow up? And that, well, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Well, Leo Brody, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure, Brett. Good to talk to you. Right. Hey, that was great. No, good, good. My guest today was Leo Brody. He's the author of the book, Terrorism to Chivalry, War and the Changing Nature of Masculinity. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at leobrody.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Brody. That's B-R-A-U-D-Y. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, have gotten something out of it over the years you've been listening to it, or maybe just a few weeks, I'd really appreciate it if you take, us, take a few minutes to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.